Part two, chapter nine, section ninety seven of the Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss, translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part two, history of the public life of Jesus. Chapter nine, miracles of Jesus. Section ninety seven, involuntary cures. Occasionally, in their general statements concerning the curative power of Jesus, the synoptical writers remark that all kinds of sick people only sought to touch Jesus or to lay hold on the hem of his garment in order to be healed, and that immediately on this slight contact a cure actually followed. Matthew chapter 14 verse 36, Mark chapter 3 verse 10, chapter 6 verse 56, Luke chapter 6 verse 19. In these cases, Jesus operated, not, as we have hitherto always seen, with a precise aim towards any particular sufferer, but on entire masses, without taking special notice of each individual. His power of healing appears not here, as elsewhere, to reside in his will, but in his body and its covering. He does not, by his own voluntary act, dispense its virtues, but is subject to have them drawn from him without his consent. Of this species of cure, again, a detailed example is preserved to us in the history of the woman who had an issue of blood, which all the synoptical writers give, and interweave in a peculiar manner with the history of the resuscitation of the daughter of Jairus, making Jesus cure the woman on his way to the ruler's house. Matthew chapter 9, verse 20 and following, Mark chapter 5, verse 25 and following, Luke chapter 8, verse 43 and following. On comparing the account of the incident in the several evangelists, we might, in this instance, be tempted to regard that of Luke as the original because it seems to offer an explanation of the uniform connection of the two histories. As, namely, the duration of the woman's sufferings is fixed by all the narrators at twelve years, so Luke, whom Mark follows, gives twelve years also as the age of the daughter of Jairus, a numerical similarity which might be a sufficient inducement to associate the two histories in the evangelical tradition. But this reason is far too isolated by itself to warrant a decision, which can only proceed from a thorough comparison of the three narratives in their various details. Matthew describes the woman simply as guni aimorousa dodeca eti which signifies that she had for twelve years been subject to an important loss of blood, probably in the form of excessive menstruation. Luke, the reputed physician, shows himself here in no degree favorable to his professional brethren, for he adds that the woman had spent all her living on physicians without obtaining any help from them. Mark, yet more unfavorable, says that she had suffered many things of many physicians, and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. Those who surround Jesus when the woman approaches him are, according to Matthew, his disciples, according to Mark and Luke, 
a thronging multitude. After all the narrators have described how the woman, as timid as she was believing, came behind Jesus and touched the hem of his garment, Mark and Luke state that she was immediately healed, but that Jesus, being conscious of the egress of curative power, asked, Who touched me? The disciples, astonished, ask in return how he can distinguish a single touch amidst so general a thronging and pressure of the crowd. According to Luke, he persists in his assertion. According to Mark, he looks inquiringly around him in order to discover the party who had touched him. Then, according to both these evangelists, the woman approaches, trembling, falls at his feet, and confesses all, whereupon Jesus gives her the tranquilizing assurance that her faith has made her whole. Matthew has not this complex train of circumstances. He merely states that, after the touch, Jesus looked round, discovered the woman, and announced to her that her faith had wrought her cure. This difference is an important one, and we need not greatly wonder that it induced store to suppose two separate cures of women afflicted in the same manner. To this expedient he was yet more decidedly determined by the still wider divergencies in the narrative of the resuscitation of the daughter of Jairus, a narrative which is interlaced with the one before us. It is, however, this very interlacement which renders it totally impossible to imagine that Jesus, twice, on both occasions, when he was on his way to restore to life the daughter of a Jewish ruler, cured a woman who had had an issue of blood twelve years. While, on this consideration, criticism has long ago decided for the singleness of the fact on which the narratives are founded, it has at the same time given the preference to those of Mark and Luke as the most vivid and circumstantial. But, in the first place, if it be admitted that Mark's addition, but rather grew worse, is merely a finishing touch from his own imagination to the expression, neither could be healed of any, which he found in Luke, there seems to be the same reason for regarding this particular of Luke's as an inference of his own by which he has amplified the simple statement, I more rousa dodeca eti which Matthew gives without any addition. If the woman had been ill twelve years, she must, it was thought, during that period, have frequently had recourse to physicians. And as, when contrasted with the inefficiency of the physicians, the miraculous power of Jesus, which instantaneously wrought a cure, appeared in all the more brilliant a light, so in the legend, or in the imagination of the narrators, there grew up these additions. What if the same observation applied to the other differences? That the woman, according to Matthew also, only touched Jesus from behind, implied the effort and the hope to remain concealed. That Jesus immediately looked round after her, implied that he was conscious of her touch. This hope on the part of the woman became the more accountable, and this consciousness on the part of Jesus the more marvelous, 
the greater the crowd that surrounded Jesus had pressed upon him. Hence, the companionship of the disciples in Matthew is by the other two evangelists changed into a thronging of the multitude. Again, Matthew mentions that Jesus looked round after the woman touched him. On this circumstance, the supposition might be founded that he had perceived her touch by a peculiar manner. Hence, the scene was further worked up, and we are shown how Jesus, though pressed on all sides, had yet a special consciousness of that particular touch by the healing power which it had drawn from him. While the simple feature, he turned him about, and when he saw her, in Matthew, is transformed into an inquiry and a searching glance around upon the crowd to discover the woman, who then is represented as coming forward, trembling, to make her confession. Lastly, on a comparison of Matthew chapter 14, verse 36, the point of this narrative, even as given in the first gospel, appears to lie in the fact that simply to touch the clothes of Jesus had in itself a healing efficacy. Accordingly, in the propagation of this history, there was a continual effort to make the result follow immediately on the touch, and to represent Jesus as remaining, even after the cure, for some time uncertain with respect to the individual who had touched him, a circumstance which is in contradiction with that superior knowledge elsewhere attributed to Jesus. Thus, under every aspect, the narrative in the first gospel presents itself as the earlier and more simple, that of the second and third as a later and more embellished formation of the legend. As regards the common substance of the narratives, it has, in recent times, been a difficulty to all theologians, whether orthodox or rationalistic, that the curative power of Jesus should have been exhibited apart from his volition. Paulus and Olhausen agree in the opinion that the agency of Jesus is thus reduced too completely into the domain of physical nature that Jesus would then be like a magnetizer, who, in operating on a nervous patient, is conscious of a diminution of strength, or like a charged electrical battery, which a mere touch will discharge. Such an idea of Christ, thinks Olhausen, is repugnant to the Christian consciousness, which determines the fullness of power resident in Jesus to have been entirely under the governance of his will and this will to have been guided by a knowledge of the moral condition of the persons to be healed. It is therefore supposed that Jesus fully recognized the woman even without seeing her, and, considering that she might be spiritually won over to him by this bodily succor, he consciously communicated to her an influx of his curative power. But in order to put an end to her false shame, and constrain her to a confession, he behaved as if he knew not who had touched him. But the Christian consciousness, in cases of this kind, means nothing else than the advanced religious culture of our age, which cannot appropriate the antiquated ideas of the Bible. Now this consciousness must be neutral where we are concerned not with dogmatical appropriation, 
but purely with the exegetical discovery of the biblical ideas. The interference of this alleged Christian consciousness is the secret of the majority of exegetical errors, and in the present instance it has led the above-named commentators astray from the evident sense of the text. For the question of Jesus in both the more detailed narratives, Who touched me? repeated as it is in Luke, and strengthened as it is in Mark, by a searching glance around, has the appearance of being meant thoroughly in earnest. And, indeed, it is the object of these two evangelists to place the miraculous nature of the curative power of Jesus in a particularly clear light, by showing that the mere touching of his clothes, accompanied by faith, no previous knowledge on his part of the person who touched, nor so much as a word from him being requisite, was sufficient to obtain a cure. Nay, even originally, in the more concise account of Matthew, the expressions, having come behind him, she touched, and he turned him about, and when he saw her, clearly imply that Jesus knew the woman only after she had touched him. If, then, it is not to be proved that Jesus had a knowledge of the woman previous to her cure, and a special will to heal her, nothing remains for those who will not admit an involuntary exhibition of curative power in Jesus, but to suppose in him a constant general will to cure, with which it was only necessary that faith on the part of the diseased person should concur, in order to produce an actual cure. But that, notwithstanding the absence of a special direction of the will to cure of this woman on the part of Jesus, she was restored to health simply by her faith without even touching his clothes, is assuredly not the idea of the evangelists. On the contrary, it is their intention to substitute for an individual act of the will on the part of Jesus, the touch on the part of the sick person. This it is which, instead of the former, brings into action the latent power of Jesus, so that the materialistic character of the representation is not in this way to be avoided. A step further was necessary to the rationalistic interpretation which not only with modern supernaturalism regards as incredible the unconscious efflux of curative power from Jesus, but also denies in general any efflux of such power, and yet wishes to preserve unattainted the historical veracity of the evangelists. According to this system, Jesus was led to ask who touched him solely because he felt himself held back in his progress. The assertion that consciousness of a departure of power was the cause of his question is a mere inference of the two narrators, of whom the one, Mark, actually gives it as his own observation, and it is only Luke who incorporates it with the question of Jesus. The cure of the woman was effected by means of her exalted confidence in consequence of which, when she touched the hem of Jesus, she was seized with a violent shuddering in her whole nervous system, which probably caused a sudden contraction of the relaxed vessels. 
at the first moment she could only believe not certainly know that she was cured and only by degrees probably after the use of means recommended to her by jesus did the malady entirely cease but who can represent to himself the timid touch of a sick woman whose design was to remain concealed and whose faith rendered her certain of obtaining a cure by the slightest touch as a grasp which arrested the progress of jesus pressed upon as he was according to mark and luke by the crowd further what a vast conception of the power of confidence is demanded by the opinion that it healed a disease of twelve years duration without the concurrence of any real force on the part of jesus lastly if the evangelists are supposed to have put into the mouth of jesus an inference of their own that healing efficacy had gone out of him if they are supposed to have described a gradual cure as an instantaneous one then with the renunciation of these particulars all warrant for the historical reality of the entire narrative falls to the ground and at the same time all necessity for troubling ourselves with the natural interpretation in fact if we only examine the narrative before us somewhat more closely and compare it with kindred anecdotes we cannot remain in doubt as to its proper character as here and in some other passages it is narrated of jesus that the sick were cured by the bare touch of his clothes so in the acts we are told that the handkerchiefs and aprons of paul cured all kinds of sick persons to whom they were applied chapter nineteen verse eleven and following and that the very shadow of peter was believed to have the same efficacy verse fifteen while the apocryphal gospels represent a mass of cures to have been wrought by means of the swaddling bands of the infant jesus and the water in which he was washed in reading these last histories every one knows that he is in the realm of fiction and legend but wherein are the cures wrought by the pocket handkerchiefs of paul to be distinguished from those wrought by the swaddling bands of jesus unless it be that the latter proceeded from a child the former from a man it is certain that if the story relative to paul were not found in a canonical book every one would deem it fabulous and yet the credibility of the narratives should not be concluded from the assumed origin of the book which contains them but on the contrary our judgment of the book must be founded on the nature of its particular narratives but again between these cures by the pocket handkerchiefs and those by the touch of the hem of the garment there is no essential distinction in both cases we have the contact of objects which are in a merely external connection with the worker of the miracle with the single difference that this connection is with regard to the pocket handkerchiefs an interrupted one with regard to the clothes a continuous one in both cases again results which even according to the orthodox view are only derived from the spiritual nature of the men in question 
and are to be regarded as acts of their will in virtue of its union with the divine, are reduced to physical effects and effluxes. The subject thus descends from the religious and theological sphere to the natural and physical, because a man with a power of healing resident in his body and floating as an atmosphere around him would belong to the objects of natural science and not of religion. But natural science is not able to accredit such a healing power by sure analogies or clear definitions. Hence, these cures, being driven from the objective to the subjective region, must receive their explanation from psychology. Now, psychology, taking into account the power of imagination and of faith, will certainly allow the possibility that without a real curative power in the reputed miracle worker, solely by the strong confidence of the diseased person that he possesses this power, bodily maladies which have a close connection with the nervous system may be cured. But when we seek for historical vouchers for this possibility, criticism, which must here be called to aid, will soon show that a far greater number of such cures has been invented by the faith of others than has been performed by the parties alleged to be concerned. Thus it is in itself by no means impossible that through strong faith in the healing power residing even in the clothes and handkerchiefs of Jesus and the apostles, many sick persons on touching these articles were conscious of real benefit. But it is at least equally probable that only after the death of these men, when their fame in the church was ever on the increase, anecdotes of this kind were believingly narrated. And it depends on the nature of the accounts, for which of the two alternatives we are to decide. In the general statement in the Gospels and the Acts, which speak of whole masses having been cured in the above way, this accumulation, at any rate, is traditional. As to the detailed history which we have been examining, on its representation that the woman had suffered twelve years from a very obstinate disease, and one the least susceptible of merely psychical influence, and that the cure was performed by power consciously emitted from Jesus, instead of by the imagination of the patient, so large a portion betrays itself to be mythical, that we can no longer discern any historical elements, and we must regard the whole as legendary. It is not difficult to see what might give rise to this branch of the evangelical miraculous legend, in distinction from others. The faith of the popular mind, dependent on the senses, and incapable of apprehending the divine through the medium of thought alone, strives perpetually to draw it down into material existence. Hence, according to a later opinion, the saint must continue to work miracles when his bones are distributed as relics, and the body of Christ must be present in the transubstantiated host. Hence, also, according to an idea developed much earlier, the curative power of the men celebrated in the New Testament must be attached to their body and its coverings. 
the less the church retained of the words of jesus the more tenaciously she clung to the efficacy of his mantle and the further she was removed from the free spiritual energy of the apostle paul the more consolatory was the idea of carrying home his curative energy in a pocket handkerchief. End of section 97